Bonnie Christian has most recently worked as a deputy editor and acting editor-in-chief at TheWeek.com, a publication known for placing side-by-side differing takes by reporters or public intellectuals from leading outlets. Succinctly, it serves up differing smart takes on complex realities that invite the reader to see two sides of the coin, from policy to environmental to technological to other cultural conundrums. Suddenly, boring questions about trade policy become a place of marvel. But there's a lot of news out there. And if we're not careful, we can go down the rabbit hole and get lost. Bonnie has just published a new book that confronts the growing onslaught of news we've all lived through in the last quarter century, a massive spike in content volume. From cable television to the exploding pace of the internet age, there's so much information being generated that we get lost. Her new book is Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. And her haunting phrase, the knowledge crisis, was perhaps brought into common parlance last year when another compelling book was published by Jonathan Rausch, the senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. John's 2021 book, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, describes the essential conditions and institutions necessary for maintaining the basic building blocks of shared human understanding in a free society. Some threats we've witnessed in recent years, from cancel culture on the left to MAGA national populism on the right, carry seeds that could unravel the shared constitution we've inherited. Still, John argues, the core institutions that guide our daily lives are unlikely to topple. For his part, John is the author of eight books and articles covering public policy, to culture, to gay marriage, to attacks on free thought. In 2005, he won the National Magazine Award, the magazine equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. In 2018, he published The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. So take heart. As you'll hear today, John really is one of the most steady, deliberate, serious public intellectuals in the journalism business. His curiosity is so refreshing. Though he's a few years ahead of Bonnie, who writes a regular column in Christianity Today, He's eager to learn from her about where contemporary evangelicals are leaning, politically or otherwise. Bonnie's first book was A Flexible Faith, and while she and John have written articles in too many places to list, I hope you'll enjoy this rich conversation between the two of them on how to steer clear from getting lost in the vortex of news that sometimes swirls. Enjoy the conversation. Bonnie, it is great to be here with you and celebrate. Today is the pub day for your book, Untrustworthy, right? That is right. Today, October 11th. First book? Second book, actually. My, my first one came out in, uh, in 2018. It is much more focused on theology and different expressions of the Christian faith over church history and then like around the world today. So some common threads, but, but in a much different vein. So why did you decide to jump into the world of belief and false belief right now? There are a lot of reasons, a lot of small reasons, things that I was observing in my own life, in my own relationships, hearing from friends about things that they were having in their families, you know, arguments that they were having between their parents and and not just sort of your 
your standard generational disagreements about politics, but that sense of coming to an impasse of, are, are you looking at the same world as me? Do, do you not see the same problem here? Why can we not agree even on sort of the factual basis of the conversation that we're having? And then also in my work as a, as a journalist, I mainly do a lot of opinion commentary. I found myself in 2018, 2019, 2020, especially coming to a lot of what I gradually began to see as related themes, themes that eventually came to to seem to me to be part of a bigger picture. And so I wanted to write about that in a, a broader sense, in a more durable sense, not so tied to the news cycle and, and hopefully something that people would be interested in reading for more than just a few days after publication. Well, so I wrote about this too, a book called The Constitution of Knowledge, and lots of academic philosophers now have, have weighed in on the the so-called epistemic crisis, the crisis of belief and, and trust in the institutions that guide our beliefs. What's interesting about your book is it talks about not only how the knowledge crisis breaks our brains, pollutes our politics, as the subtitle says, but corrupts the Christian community. So I was hoping to explore some of, some of that angle with you. Why corrupt the Christian community? Yeah, I think there's sort of three answers to that. One is that that Christians are like everyone else involved in in politics, involved in social media, spending so much of our time and attention in this very chaotic information environment. And so we're not immune to the same things that other, other people in America are, are experiencing. If this knowledge crisis is as widespread as I think it is, there's no reason to anticipate that Christians would have some special escape from it. The second thing is that in some cases, I think we might even be a little bit more inclined, more susceptible to some of these problems. And the main place where I would point to that would be around a, a conspiracist mindset, getting involved in not just distinct conspiracy theories, but having a, a whole framework of looking at the world, which is at once very cynical, if the speaker is someone whom we dislike, very, very distrusting, but also very gullible, very easily fooled if the speaker is someone we like, no matter how ridiculous the assertions. And I think Christians are, are uniquely susceptible there in some ways. And, and perhaps you can make the case for, for people of faith more broadly, but for my, my knowledge area, Christians, because it makes sense for us that there would be sort of this big grand plan for the world, this big behind the scenes interaction between good and evil. And so that sort of mindset can layer very easily and very deceptively over existing Christian beliefs. And then the third reason I would point to is that we are supposed to be in, in community with one another. We are, you know, we are supposed to be in these congregational contexts where there are people at church, often even in the most homogenous churches, people who disagree with you politically, people whom you would not be friends with if you were choosing simply on the basis of how much do I like this person? How much do we have in common? And so Christians are, on the one hand, falling into this, this confusion around what is trustworthy because of how we're spending our time and how we're spending our attention and what voices we're giving authority in our lives. And then we are coming to church and finding people who are in similar confusion, but a different flavor of it. And that puts us in conflict with one another in a way that, you know, for many Americans, if, if you aren't sort of 
forced by that church setting to be in what is supposed to be a loving relationship with people with such different views, you might be able to avoid some of that conflict. Um, and so I think those are those are three of the ways that I would say it's affecting Christians in particular. Bonnie, I, I wonder if you might say just a little bit more about that sort of gullibility piece, mm-hmm. your use of the Hannah Arendt quote partway through the book, was I thought particularly gripping about how people reaching the point at which we will simultaneously believe everything and nothing. And I think it sort of picked up on parts of what what John describes in his book about the marketplace of realities versus the marketplace of ideas, the marketplace mm-hmm. of realities, that sort of notion that you get bored, you find a new one, and you just scroll, scroll, scroll. Could you say a little bit more about whether people of, of Christian faith or other faith may be particularly susceptible to a certain gullibility there and and how that is is sort of strengthened by the technology of, of, of the internet? Yeah. Well, so I think for Christians and, and again, maybe for people of faith more generally, we have this idea that we, you know, we know the truth and, and obviously we, we think sincerely that what we believe is true. And I think we often can fall into this idea of, well, if I have this this basis of true belief that informs my worldview, then that's even more reason to believe that the other things I believe are true, right? Because I have this, this strong foundation. And so I don't know that it, I don't know that that sometimes unwarranted confidence in our own ability to tell truth from lies, it certainly doesn't guarantee that we're going to get into this mixture of, of gullibility and cynicism, to use Arndt's phrase. But I think if we, if we do get there, it can exacerbate the problem, her phrase where people will believe everything and nothing, think that everything was possible and nothing was true. That phrase just became so familiar in a very unpleasant way over the past few years, where you'll see people on social media, and you you mentioned the technology piece, you see this all the time on social media, people come across a report, maybe a perfectly credible, well-reported report, and they don't like it. And so, well, I don't believe that. Just, just dismiss it out of hand. You can't make me believe that. I don't have to believe that. But then something that they are inclined to believe, no matter how outlandish, will come across the feed. And here's where the gullibility kicks in. Well, it's possible. You can't prove that it's, that, that didn't happen. Like it, it, is, it makes sense to me. And so I'm going to choose to believe it. Are Christians on average any worse about this than anyone else? I don't know that I would go that far, but I, I certainly think that that when we do fall into that mindset, it's worse in the sense that we think of ourselves, we're supposed to be people of truth. So so how bad is it when we've really, while lauding ourselves for our truth-telling, actually abandoned commitment to knowable public truths in favor of just what we want, what is pleasant and comfortable for us? If I could just push you a bit further on this mm-hmm. in a slightly political direction. It sounds like you're saying there is a general crisis of belief in society, that Christians are not immune to that. In some ways, they're even more afflicted by it in terms of political, in terms of conspiracy theories. And it's it's a crisis not only of Christianity, but within Christianity, because it's, it's dividing churches. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I got so far. Let me know if that's wrong. Where I wanted to go with that is to Trump and MAGA. So evangelicals have become the core base for the MAGA movement. And the MAGA movement, I argue in the Constitution of Knowledge, is the first most audacious and most successful Russian-style mass disinformation campaign since at least the Civil War, if not forever. It is 
founded on a bed of lies, particularly the election lie. And that has kind of not merged theologically, but politically, it's merged to some extent with the evangelical, uh, the white evangelical movement in America. Can you talk a bit about, first, am I right to say that? And second, what's this political aspect all about, if I'm right? I think for the most part, you are right. I think there are some qualifications that can be made. We can talk about what is the exact definition of an evangelical. We can parse out, are we talking about sort of the, the political identifier where you have people claiming that label who don't fit you know, the way evangelical was designed for decades, who never go to church, don't have sort of the hallmark beliefs, these sorts of things. But in broad strokes, yeah, I think that's right. As far as what to what to say about it, so many things to say about it. I think I think you're right that it is it is so fundamentally deceptive in many ways, and it is a a big part of the knowledge crisis that we're experiencing. That that very deliberate and in many cases so brazen muddling of the truth. You know, these phrases have become cliches by now, but like alternative facts, the, the reason we were all so worked up about that when Kellyanne Conway first said it is it was, I mean, it was just shocking that that was a, a serious claim that, that someone was making and that that was going to be her argument and that people bought it and that people continued to defend it. You know, as we're recording this, there's this Herschel Walker scandal about, you know, he allegedly paid for an abortion while touting his, you know, now he's out here touting his absolute pro-life credentials and, and uh, will evangelicals still vote for him? And the, the consensus seems to be that they will. It's part of the knowledge crisis. It's it's also part of a, of a bigger crisis of was the movement what it, uh, evangelicalism, was it what it claimed to be? Was it always a lie? Was all of the stuff about the importance of character in the 1990s? You know, I, I grew up hearing that stuff. It doesn't matter that President Clinton balanced the budget. If he doesn't have the character, we can't support him. Was that sincere then and since abandoned? Was it always insincere? Was it sincere for some people and not for others? I think this gets at where a lot of the the more constructive portions of my book go, which is about what kinds of people we are and, and what kinds of virtues we're trying to develop. Because without that, I think you end up exactly where, exactly in, in the confusion and deception and lack of integrity that we see around these mergings and movements today, I would say it, it does, it is happening to some extent theologically that the MAGA movement is, for some evangelicals, having a, a theological influence as well. Just recently on that front, I've seen some, some speculation that evangelical views of the apocalypse are shifting <laughs> from the world is going to get worse and worse, and then God ends it, to the world is going to get better and better. And then God ends it because that allows that new, that second story would allow for the success of Trump's restoration and the MAGA movement and Christian nationalism for it, it makes space for them to win and improve the world. And that's, that's the improvement God's waiting for before he'll return. So that sounds a lot like QAnon. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's sort of pouring in 
room for the the QAnon triumph into Christian eschatology, which is wild. I don't know how widespread that is, but I've I've seen some evidence that it's happening and some speculation from scholars that it's going to escalate. Josh, I'll just before we go there, just just two quick comments on that, if I may, please. A couple things that Russell Moore, the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, former head of the Southern Baptist Convention, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, so one of the leading evangelical thinkers in America, he has said a couple of interesting things about this. The first is that 10 years ago, young people who were leaving the church or thinking of leaving the evangelical movement would come to him saying, they're not sure that they believe church doctrine anymore. And he said, now they're coming to him saying, they're not sure the church believes church doctrine anymore because they're seeing the kinds of hypocrisy that you just alluded to. Mm-hmm. A second is data from, from Pew, which is finding apparently a change in the composition of the evangelical movement to some extent stemming from the epistemic crisis that you're writing about, which is People who, regular churchgoers who care more about the theology, but especially younger ones, are tending to exit, and less observant people who are more politicized and who are really seeing evangelical as a label that signifies their commitment to MAGA politics are entering the church. Mm -hmm. So it's becoming less about Jesus and more about MAGA and changing in its membership along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the most dire suspicions of those younger people are becoming more and more true because of that that shift in composition. I guess I, I wonder if if you think there is a certain plausibility structure for evangelicals. Maybe there's 80 million of us in the country, a, four, a, quarter, a quarter of the country, that kind of begins to make it a little bit more palatable, a little bit easier, because there's this personal relationship that's emphasized, but it's easy. And that was part of what Trump played into for the last six or seven years. Getting back to the book, you you each talk a little bit about this idea of selection bias and how we tend to look for facts that reinforce our point of view. How's that work, John? You talk about it a little bit in, in the Constitution of Knowledge. Why, why do we read looking for facts that reinforce our point of view? Called usually confirmation bias, not selection bias. And it's one of our most hardwired characteristics. We don't, humans are not designed to believe things that are objectively true. I mean, we often do. And especially for situations where we get immediate feedback on on important matters to our survival, yeah, we're pretty good at understanding, you know, where is the next tribe camped? Is that a tiger in the bush or just a breeze? On abstract questions like why didn't it rain this year or what's the cause of this plague that's killing us, we tend to come up with terrible answers like, well, it's because Bonnie's a witch and the way she looked at me hexed us all. And so we kill Bonnie. It's true. And we settle these beliefs primarily socially, which is we want to conform with those around us because if we don't, we could get ostracized. We could fall out of favor with the tribe. We could die. And of course, the tribe is more likely to be right than we are. So we're kind of little walking antenna and we're very alert to what people around us believe. If lots of people believe something, it seems more plausible to us. That's called conformity bias. And we also have confirmation bias, which is we want to believe things that enhance our prestige, our sense of of self, and our place in the community. And we will not only believe, but we will actually preferentially perceive things 
that bolster our sense of self or our sense of status. And of course, these two things interact because we associate with people who believe the same way we do. Thus, we confirm each other's confirmation bias. Very easy for whole societies to go down rabbit holes of false belief, as we see, for example, with QAnon, which is all about communal belief, not about objective reality. Yeah. I, and I think in regards to your comment, Josh, about does, is there sort of, does it make sense? Like, is there a, a reason why people, evangelical Christians or, or you know, to, to whatever degree they're actually observant, but went so strongly for Trump and for the MAGA movement? I, I think it's it's a lot of those those reasons that in that context, yeah, it does feel like it makes a lot of sense. And I use feel it on purpose because it's not purely rational. I think we all want to sort of think of ourselves as these very rational creatures. And, you know, I'm just deciding based on the facts and the facts don't care about your feelings and so on and so forth. But the reality is that's not the way we work most of the time. And as much as I make my living for the most part, trying to like present arguments to people in hopes that their minds will change. Number one, those arguments aren't always going to be purely rational. You know, I mean, journalists love to start with a little anecdote because that, that sort of sets the emotional stage, makes people receptive to the more reasoned stuff that's going to come next. But two, I'm very aware of the fact that there's a big difference between someone coming to an article of mine sort of prepared to maybe have their minds changed on that subject, like coming into it willing to give what I'm saying a hearing and the way that we operate day to day. That mindset of, of saying like, I'm going to give this a chance. I'm going to see what I think about this. Maybe this is going to change my mind. That's not how we function <laughs> most of the time and especially in those communal settings. And this is to mention QAnon again, this is one one thing that is, I think, different about our current technological moment, um, that it does put us in those communal contexts as we're deciding what we think about things. And so it, it, it's very different from just sort of sitting at the dining room table, reading your paper newspaper, sort of weighing what you're encountering there. And that's a very different experience mentally from encountering even maybe the exact same words on social media in the company of people who some of them hate you and everything you stand for. And some of them are, you know, rallying with you saying, I'll, I'll help protect you. I'll help support you and defend your rights. Whose voices, whose interpretation of those, that same text is going to have more weight with you. I think it's obvious. The core idea of my book, The Constitution of Knowledge, we're here to celebrate your book, Bonnie, but I, I, can't resist getting an advertisement Two in books. here or there. <laughs> Both books. The core idea is that humans are much less rational than we like to believe. The ancients knew that. It's now clearer than ever, thanks to modern psychology. And that's true of scientists. It's true of everyone. Because of that, we need social systems that guide us toward collective rationality. We can't do it by ourselves. Even in principle, a person by herself on an island will be only intermittently rational and have lots of false beliefs. So we have to be in a social system mm -hmm. that pits our prejudices against each other. I can't see my biases, you can't see yours, but I can see yours and you can see mine. So we have to be in a structured environment that forces us into contestation with people with very different biases and then has a set of rules for working those out that will drive us toward eventual consensus around something like reality. And that's what the constitution of knowledge is. It's a set of rules, not unlike the rules that govern politics, which force compromise. Constitution of knowledge forces persuasion, says there are right ways to do it and wrong ways to do it. But the key is in the social environment that you create. And part of what I think motivates both of our books 
is the growing situation where you have large chunks of society that are splitting off from mainstream reality, forming their own, often politically motivated, out of touch with facts, sometimes politically destabilizing. The Stop the Steal Lie campaign is a good example of that. We're sometimes leading to insularity and divisiveness and out of touchness. And you write about how that's happening in the evangelical world. Yeah. And I, I think, so one of my, I used to write at an outlet called The Week and one of my colleagues there, Damon Linker, who's now out on his own in a Substack, he wrote an article a while back where basically he, he made the case, and I, I think it's an important point, that you always had people who fell into sort of extremist political views. You always had people who were disconnected from reality like that. You know, you always had your crank uncle. None of that is new, but what's different now is that they can find each other online. And so once you might've had pockets of people in little rural communities who sort of, as you described, disconnected from reality, did not accept things as they are, built their own little imaginary worlds. It didn't affect that much in many cases because there was just a few of them and they were out in you know rural Wisconsin or wherever the case might be. Whereas now those folks will find each other and now they're not just pockets here and there, maybe with their own idiosyncratic mindsets, but they find each other, they can build on a few things in common, gradually start being more and more united in their alternative view of what the world is. And now you have a movement that can actually affect things for everyone else in a way that that couldn't happen. Is your thinking that, and John, you especially having written your book a year ago, is that about right? Yeah. Talk about like government and law and science and, and, and have often sort of weighed in a little bit, at least around journalism. There ought to be baked into the canopy and the system more diversity, more viewpoint diversity than there is now. I mean, what are, what are the ways in which the ingredients that we're so lucky to have as we do, but are, are maybe misplaying a bit? that ought to be when it comes to, to journalism better and political parties, political systems better? Well, if you want to talk about journalism specifically, there's a lot to say about that. I'm a, I'm a career journalist by training. By way of setting this up, there are three conditions that the constitution of knowledge, the social system we rely on to keep ourselves as a society more de fact. There are three things that it really needs. The first is freedom of speech and freedom of thought. We kind of take that one for granted. Lots of talk about that, especially in the context of college campuses. The second is the discipline of fact. That's we're not truthy. We don't just assert things because we feel like it. We have to go out and check whether they're true and involve other people in the process. So we have to try to stay more de facto. And that's really hard. That's actually what Bonnie's book is largely about. And then the third thing you need to make the other two work is diversity of point of view. Because if I'm in a room with people who all share my biases and beliefs, no learning will take place because we won't ask the questions that come from having a different perspective and testing the hypothesis. So we go down rabbit holes of assumptions. All three of those things are under threat right now. The first, freedom of speech, is under threat from cancel culture, which is not new in theory, but it's got some powerful new tools in the form of social media and the like. The second, the discipline of fact, factfulness is under attack, especially from the MAGA right, which is Russian-style disinformation applied on a mass scale in the United States with awesome success, 
completely unmoored from facts. It's about spewing out exaggeration, lies, distortions, conspiracy theories, half-truths at such a rate through so many channels so quickly that it's a rent. Everything is possible. Nothing is true. And then the third is viewpoint diversity. And that's where I think we're seeing some institutional shortcomings in academia, for example, and in journalism. A lot of people were astounded that journalists were astounded that Trump won in 2016 because we weren't getting out enough. Mm. In some newsrooms, there are no longer enough conservative voices so that we test those progressive assumptions. That's even more true. It's much more true in, in some disciplines in universities social sciences and humanities especially. So we need to do a better job, those of us inside the reality-based community, journalism, academia, of ensuring that we are welcoming and non-discriminatory toward conservative and non-progressive viewpoints. And we need to do better at that. Sorry, it's a long response, but <laughs> that's a great answer. Well, can I, can I ask a, a follow-up to that? I wonder, where do you land on if you had to forecast, will these institutions do better? I'm sort of of two minds. On, on the one hand, I think they're, particularly with, with large institutions, there is a great degree of inertia. And in some ways, things stay the same more than they change. On the other hand, it seems like there has been a lot of change in the last 30 years and much of it for the worse, especially in terms of like the public's relation to these institutions. And so I, I wonder if you had to forecast, do you, do you think things will continue on their current decline? Or, or do you have real hope that institutions will improve in the ways you've outlined? Uh, they're already improving. They've improved a lot, actually, just in the last five years. I'll give you a few examples. But before I give you a few examples, I'll say that doesn't mean the situation is under control and handles itself. It means there's a constant battle mm -hmm. between the forces of constitution and knowledge, the reality-based community, and the constant forces that are trying to disrupt that for political gain or profit. And it's just a constant game of adaptation as the attackers find new routes. So, so we can never just say, okay, we're in a stable situation. Media has become much better than it was five years ago at understanding disinformation, priming its readers for it. We now have people who cover it. People in journalism were extremely naive about the use of disinformation and the way they handle it. They'd report a conspiracy theory with all its lurid details, which, of course, if you rebut a conspiracy by repeating it, you actually embed it more deeply. They are aware. We're not doing enough, I think, but we are aware that there is a bubble problem in mainstream media. And I think there are efforts in newsrooms to be more self-consciously, make an effort to get more different voices. We know that the Russians, Chinese, and Iranians tried to influence the 2020 election with the same kind of chaotic misinformation that they used in 2016. We also know that they had almost no luck because the online platforms and mainstream media have become so much more sophisticated at discovering disinformation campaigns in early stages and disamplifying them. We now have all around the world observatories and institutions that are focused on disinformation, getting inside the campaigns early, places like the Stanford Internet Observatory. And then they'll essentially call up the social networks, the search engines, some cases, government law enforcement, and say, hey, look, look what's coming down the pike. This information campaign is going to do X and Y. So they're much more on top of it than they used to be. So 
there's a lot of adaptation going on to these new tactics. Uh, I could go on, you know, and talk about stuff that's happening in cancel culture. The laggard is academia. Mm. We're really not seeing enough change in academia. Mm. But even there, we've seen the growth of heterodox community, which is an academic organization dedicated to encouraging more viewpoint diversity. A lot of members are progressives who want to see more conservatives. So the institutions are adapting. The problem is we've had these huge shocks that you write about in your book. One is social media. One is mass disinformation, the MAGA movement. Um, Another is the weaponization of conspiracy theories. And it always takes institutions time to catch up. And it's really hard because we're dealing with a thinking, adapting opponent. Yeah, I was doing that to your point about about journalism. I was doing an interview uh, a few days ago, and and one of the questions they asked was, as a Christian, something to the effect of like, is it do you, is there other conflicts with being in journalism, or is it difficult to be in journalism as a Christian? And my answer was, no, not really. I mean, in my experience, the more mainstream an outlet is, the more my faith and my background in evangelicalism has been a selling point for them. They're very, they've been very eager to say, will you please come in and explain what the evangelicals are doing for us? Can you cast an eye on this? Do you want, here's a religion story. Do you want to take this one? Because maybe you have some subject matter expertise that we don't. I think that we can certainly still use a lot more of that and a lot more, as you've said, being able to check each other and, and point out blind spots that are innocent. People don't even know that they have, they don't understand what it is that they don't understand. But I do think that that hunger is there to, to bring in other viewpoints. And I mean, in many cases, as a, as a newsroom, having that diversity of perspective on the production side saves you from a lot of embarrassment because you don't put out that embarrassing story that gets things totally wrong and you have 5,000 people on Twitter detailing your exact error. Well, that's right. In the reality-based community, that's my word for government, law, journalism, and academia, the four big institutions that have to be reality-based or we wind up in tyranny, oppression, and ignorance, they have one advantage, which is that they're reality-based. And if you're a journalist and you get it wrong again and again, or your organization does, because you don't have the right kind of people on your staff to warn you when you're making mistakes, eventually you're going to need to fix that, right? So we are seeing movement in that direction. Bonnie, how much of this is virtue signaling? You talk, for example, about those we believe signs in many yards from place to place. Uh, How how much of of that is in play in our knowledge crisis? I think virtue signaling is a problem insofar as it's often used to sort of shut down conversations. Those yard signs fascinated me when I started seeing them. I lived in the Twin Cities up until last summer, and in our neighborhood, which was about 95% Democratic, they were just ubiquitous. And it was so curious because they weren't a campaign sign. They weren't tied to a specific election season or candidate. It was something that you were they were just going to have up forever that declared what kind of person they were and implicitly what kind of person they disliked. So I interviewed some folks in our neighborhood for a, a column I wrote. These were their their answers. It was, it was very much like, a, I can't imagine ever taking it down unless it was damaged because this is who I am and I want people to know that. And I think, you know, I think that 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 makes that sort of very, you know, it's not a bad thing to be open about your beliefs. But I think at a certain point where you're literally putting a sign in the front yard in a way that is, from my conversations, as much warning as declaration almost. One woman told me she couldn't imagine having someone over at her house who disagreed with that 
perspective. I think that that really gets us into into trouble. It's going to be a hard time to have conversations between different viewpoints if we're so busy posting our signs to indicate how good and right our viewpoint is and how disinterested we are in talking with anyone else. But I would also pair that with a note that it often seems like many of the people who levy accusations of virtue signaling have forgotten that virtue is in fact a good thing, that the signaling is a problem, but it is not bad to want to be virtuous. Quite the contrary, virtue is something we should be cultivating. And it is, a, I think, a big part of getting out of this crisis is, is developing intellectual virtues and learning to to look for knowledge and to engage in public conversations in a virtuous way. And so I do worry, I think the left is prone to virtue signaling sometimes. I think the right is prone to being so eager to criticize that, that they throw out the baby with the bathwater and want to dismiss the virtue along with the signaling. Is there any particular habit a nudge that you would have for for those of us who are prone to making mistakes uh, in how we read the news and how we sort of send around articles to our family members and how we how we engage. Is there anything? I remember, for example, John and Pete Weiner co-authoring a piece together in the New York Times about religious liberty and gay rights, and I remember that being thinking that was a real example of of sort of coming coming across the lines and bridging and finding something to say that that is true, Mm -hmm. but whether it's sort of friendships or common projects or taking on tasks that are hard, what what would you suggest for those of us who who recognize the problem? Yeah, the the, the three virtues that I I highlight in Untrustworthy are studiousness and intellectual honesty and wisdom. And those are in that order, sort of in in the process of as we're looking for knowledge, as we're acquiring it, and as we're trying to use it. And I think that those are things that we need to be more deliberately thinking about how can I cultivate this? How can I be a person who is not signaling and, and touting how virtuous I am, but but actually adopting these virtues? But unfortunately, that is not something that we can sort of just decide to do. If it were, we would all be so virtuous because we would just, you know, pick out our virtues and adopt them. It is a, a long process. And I think something that has to be really supported by by habits. And those are the, the more concrete changes that we can make in our lives. And so for someone asking that question, I mean, I think my single go-to thing is look at your habits and look how much of that share online sharing and arguing and, and spreading of information that you're doing and maybe consider doing a lot less of it. We focus a lot on quality of information and, and quality of arguments, and that's very important. But I think quantity has become a really significant factor as well. And if we are devoting so much of our time and attention to often very bitter conflicts, that is going to shape us into a bitter and argumentative and unreasonable person. And so just doing less of it is a really good place to start. How are you feeling about the future of truth, and especially in the evangelical world? Where do you think this is headed? I'm assuming Uh, everyone does not (laughs) buy your book and immediately adopt the good epistemic practices that you you don't think all 80 million evangelicals in this country are going to buy a copy? I'm very disappointed. <laughs> I, can, I can hope. I thought this was my ticket to an early retirement. No, I mean, I, I think there are some ways in which I'm, I'm very pessimistic and there are some ways in which I'm hopeful. I think the causes for pessimism are pretty obvious. It's the fact of this crisis and sort of the trends and behaviors that we can all observe and have been observing for the past seven years. 
But I also think that there's a, a growing awareness that we do have a problem, that when I say my book is about this sense of a knowledge crisis, people, I think, generally have a, a good sense already of what I mean, and they've experienced it. And I don't sort of have to make the case that the problem exists, that there is something very wrong with how our information environment is working right now, with how many of us are behaving online. And so that recognition, I think, is a good start. And then the other thing that I would point to is I didn't really have internet access full time until college. And so in that very first generation of using the internet all the time, we didn't really have a good idea of what the risks of the internet were. Like I remember fears about someone's going to catfish you in a chat room and lure you to the Walmart parking lot and kidnap you. Right. And not that that's never happened, but that it turns out was not the primary risk of the internet, the risk was not that like our bodies would be kidnapped, but that our, our attentions and the way our brains work and our, our mindsets would be taken and altered by our use of the internet. And I think that people my age, as much as our brains are broken <laughs> by the internet and may always be a little bit broken by the internet, this may be something we have to, to deal with not only in our society, but in ourselves for the rest of our lives. We are coming to the project of raising a younger generation with a much more accurate sense of what are the risks here. And we can think with information that our parents could not have had about how should children be introduced to this mess that we've made with its many assets, but also its many liabilities. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that even if a lot of these problems persist long term, at least we have a increasingly good grasp of what's happening and how can we prevent sort of the same problems from being replicated in future generations. Well, Faith Angle is part of that. And I've been a fan for a long time. Michael Cromarty, I believe the founder, was one of the, I think, first people in America to come to a realization that there had to be more dialogue and it had to be more constructive between the faith world and the secular world. And that's now truer than ever. So for that reason, among many others, Apart from congratulating Bonnie on an important and excellent book, I am grateful to be with you today. Faith Angle exists to help leading journalists better understand the times in which they write and we read. Thanks for listening. <laughs>